me and my three buddies. Second to last test of the year, geometry class. And I was ready. We were all ready. <laughs> no, we hadn't studied. I didn't even know what a geometry was. But each of us had all the answers to the test written down on a teeny tiny cheat sheet. I don't know how Chris got it, but he got it. Everything was gonna be cool. We sat down to take the test, 30 questions. I was gonna have to play this out, act like I was working real hard. So I furled my brow, you know, deep in thought. And then two minutes into the exam, my boy Jeff, he gets up like he's Einstein, walks over to Mr. Vanderjack's desk, turns in his test with all the correct answers marked, and he walks out. Mr. Vanderjack looks down, his face explodes in beet red fury. He looks up, and I know he's gonna murder me. Cause Mr. Vanderjack knows that if Jeff has a test, that means Chris, Nick, and myself, we all have it too. He's already moved us to the four corners of the room to stop us from talking to each other. And then this idiot Jeff gets up and gives it all away. Lord, my cheat sheet's in my hand and I'm sweating. And Mr. Vanderjack's angry red eyes are boring down on mine. He knows, he knows, he knows. And then he has to look away to the other end of the room because that's where Nick was sitting. And I take a glance at the cheat sheet and looks over at Chris. And I take a glance at the cheat sheet and looks back over at me and have a furrowed brow deep in what I hope looks like geometric concentration. And so pass the 30 longest minutes of my short life. Finally, the bell rings. I turn in my test. Outside, I meet with my boys. Everybody agrees that next time, next time, Jeff, Jeff gets fake answers. Today, on Snap Judgment, from PRX and NPR, we proudly present Partners in Crime. Partners in Crime. Stories about real people doing something together that they could never do alone. My name is Glenn Washington, and this is Snap Judgment. I'm going to get today's episode kicked off right with a story of one of the most amazing partnerships I've ever heard of. Snap Stephanie Fu takes us down south 
way south for a tale of friendship like you've never heard before. In Africa, crocodiles are considered to be the spirit of evil. In Central America, crocodiles are on average about 13 feet long and almost a thousand pounds. They can swim at up to 20 miles per hour before closing their mouths on their prey with the force of thousands of pounds per square inch, enough to crunch through bones like saltine crackers. Cheeto thought that was cute. Everyone has a dog or a bear. But ever since I was little, I liked having unconventional things. I like to do things that are a little more difficult. Crocs, it was something different to make harmony with them. Chito, which is short for Gilberto Shedin, lives in Sequires, Costa Rica. He fished and acted as a tour guide there. And every time he saw a crocodile, he tried to interact with it. We'd be out there sometimes in a boat, so I'd get close to them, perhaps uh, give him a piece of chicken so I could get close and touch him. The crocs generally weren't crazy about his presence, but they didn't hurt him. I was always very careful with them. I respect animals and always maintain some order to not have problems. If a croc was upset, I couldn't get close. I tried to show them that we are friends and uh, not bother them so they never tried to bite me. That's about as close as he ever got to hanging with the crocs. Until one morning, he noticed a crocodile sitting on the shore. He passed it by and kept fishing, but much later in the evening, it was in exactly the same spot. He realized that something might be wrong with it, so he paddled up to the croc. He was three meters long, and I saw that he had an injury on his head, a bullet wound. Crocs eat the little cows in the area, so the owner of a cow shot him. Chito felt sorry for the crocodile, so he called over a group of his friends and asked them to help him load the croc into a boat to take it home. They were like, no, 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 let's go. Let's not take the croc. They were all scared. So I was like, let's get this croc. I want to cure it. He was a little irritated, but he didn't have much strength because he was too skinny. I don't know how long he had been there, and we put him on a boat and I brought him to my house. Cheeto lives on the edge of a nearby lake, so they paddled to his house and brought the croc inside. Unsurprisingly, Cheeto's wife was not pleased when they dropped the crocodile in the living room. My family didn't want for me to have it there. Everyone was scared, since it was big and skinny and ugly. Everyone would say that I was crazy and ask, how can I do this with this animal? It might eat my one-year-old daughter and my family. I almost lost my family, my sister, my brother, because they wouldn't come here anymore. But I didn't want to take him to the river because he was injured, you know? So Cheeto took the croc outside and let him lie on the banks of the lake in the daytime. And at night, he snuck out of the house and took care of the crocodile. So I kept giving him and giving him food. At first, he wouldn't eat enough, but then he began to eat. I kept feeding him chicken until he started looking good. I would try to pet him so he would feel that I cared about him. When I would touch him, he would sometimes get a little irritated, so I kept on caressing and caressing him. And I would say, Lagartito, relax, relax. I want to be your friend. Behave nicely because you won't be bothered anymore. Over the course of several weeks, the crocodile became accustomed to Cheeto's petting. I would touch at first his tail. 
then the belly, till finally I touched his head. When I touched the head, that's when we had finally become friends. Cheeto felt that he could trust his new pet now, who never seemed to get angry when he touched him. So he snuck his young daughter down to meet the crocodile. I would show him to her, and she would always touch it with me. Then I'd give him food and kiss him so he'd feel happy. Eventually, Cheeto showed his wife how friendly the croc was, how he even allowed Cheeto to put his hands in his mouth. When she saw how docile the crocodile was, she fell in love with it too. They kept feeding him until he began to grow muscular and strong, or as they say in Costa Rica, pocho. I started calling him pocho. Pocho, you're pocho. And he would come quickly. He would come running to me. Cheeto started to go into the lake with Pocho. They'd roll around together and give each other hugs, and Cheeto would hitch rides on Pocho's back around the lake. It became clear that Pocho was better now, and that it was time for him to go back into the wild. So I decided to release him back in the river. We took him in the truck and then left him there. He wouldn't go back in. He would stay right there. So I brought him back home. The two hung out every day until Cheeto fell ill and had to have a minor surgery. His doctor told him he'd be fine, but Cheeto could not move around for six months at the risk of getting an infection. But after just several weeks, Cheeto decided he missed his pet, and he was going to get back into the lake and visit Pocho. Everyone was scared. Since I had gone so long without going in the water, everyone thought the croc would react differently. There is an old fable by Aesop where a farmer finds a viper freezing in the snow. The farmer takes the viper home, warms him up, and saves his life. Once the viper feels better, he repays the farmer by biting him and killing him. The moral being that one cannot change an animal's nature. Evil will always be evil. But Cheeto did not care about proverbs and warnings. He waded back out into the water and called to Pocho. And he came to me and got close to my stomach, and he stayed there with me. And then everyone applauded. Pocho had actually missed Cheeto. He didn't react like the people said. In fact, he was even friendlier than ever before. That day, Pocho gave Cheeto extra cuddles. And that's when Cheeto knew that Pocho was more than just a crocodile acting on animal instincts, wanting to be fed. Pocho truly loved Cheeto and the feeling was mutual. I had problems with my wife because I said that I loved the crocodile more than my wife. So my wife got a little mad. For a year, Chito had kept Pocho under wraps because he didn't want everyone to think he was crazy. But you can't keep a pet crocodile secret forever. One time, someone saw me hanging with Pocho and they called the TV press. People from all over the world started coming and filming it and making documentaries. So Cheeto and Pocho started doing shows together, performing for tourists who came to see them. I would say, and he would come. When a lot of people came, I'd go to the lake and I'd tell them, Pocho, we're going to do a good show. We're going to give the best show this week so that people can be happy. So we do shows with more action, more stuff, more circling, very dynamic. In the shows, Cheeto rolled Pocho around in the water and put his own head between Pocho's forelegs. He swam underneath Pocho and popped up underneath his head. They both looked like they were having all the fun in the world. 
And they did this for 20 years. On a Sunday in October 2011, Pocho and Chito put on one of their biggest shows yet. That day, Pocho did everything and Pocho did his thing really well. The show was a huge success. Chito and Pocho went to sleep. The next day, Chito went out to say good morning to his friend. So I called him, I said, and he didn't move. When I would call him, he always moved. So I saw him in the lake, said, and he didn't move. So I jumped in the water to see what was up. And when I went to touch him, he was already cold. He was dead. The whole town threw an enormous funeral for Pocho. After all, he was possibly the most beloved crocodile in the world. I received letters from all over the world, everyone. People were sending me letters, sending their regards and consoling me, saying that God has a reason for everything. So many people came to see. I had written a song for him called Pocho. A reggae for Pocho. It was kind of salsa, calypso, Caribbean mix. Pocho! Pocho! Pocho is now stuffed and behind a glass case. He sits in a museum dedicated to him in Sequitas. The museum is near Chito's house, and he visits Pocho often. Pocho changed my life because uh, this part is difficult to talk about because uh, Pocho changed my life because when you work with animals, you get humans a lot easier. You could feel the emotion, the chemistry. Knowing people was easy. So now I can find a loving person, but I cannot find another crocodile. Another crocodile like Pocho would be totally difficult. But the American crocodile is endangered, and Chito thinks it's important to keep communicating with crocodiles. It's something really important to have a croc. I think it's necessary to have one like that in the lake so people can understand that they should be cared for and protected. And Chito found another crocodile near his house recently. Oh, I would always see it in the river when I'd go fishing. I would bring him food and pet him. He says the new croc likes him now, but their relationship is still new. It's a little harder. There is a less closeness now. But with time, a little love, peace, patience for the animal, and then you can achieve a lot. I'm on track, little by little. Hopefully in two years we can be good enough friends to do shows. But Cheeto will never, ever forget his old friend. Cheeto, what's your new crocodile's name? His name is Pocho Dos. Thanks so much to Alberto Charing, also known as Chito. And thanks as well to Samuel Orozco from Radio Bilingue for being the voice of Chito in this story. And thanks, too, to the Tico Times for helping us out. That story was produced by Stephanie Fu with sound design and translation by Renzo Gorio. You're listening to Snap Judgment, the Partners in Crime episode and when we return, we're going to desecrate a gravesite. We're going to start a band in one of the most dangerous places on Earth. And we're going to stop someone's grandfather 
from getting blood all over his nice clean floor. When Snap Judgment, the Partner in Crime episode continues. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to Snap Judgment. Did you know Snap is just part of the big NPR podcast family? There's music, news, culture, and entertainment. You can check it out on iTunes under podcasts. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Partner in Crime episode. Stories where real people buddy up to do something they could never do alone. And our next piece is from Chris Keating. Chris is the lead singer of the psychedelic electronic rock band, Yesair. But Chris is not just a rock star. He's also a grandson. A few years ago, my last remaining grandparent, my grandmother on my father's side, died. She'd been having a a really long kind of struggle with Alzheimer's for about a decade. So it's really, really sad, but you're almost glad when you get the call. My grandparents were uh, Irish. My grandparents had a wonderful sense of humor, just like loving to laugh, especially going through what they went through. Their house was hit with a bomb during World War II in 1943, and they are able to survive when everyone else in their apartment building died, basically. So I think their outlook on life was, you have a sense of humor, kind of have to. So my grandfather had been dead for a while. My dad had kept his ashes, and then when my grandmother died, she was cremated, and he combined their ashes together, and our whole plan was to um, bury them in Ireland. We decided we are all going to go, and I ended up meeting up with them in Dublin, and we go about an hour north to a town called Drogheda, outside of which there's this uh, cemetery called Monaster Boyce, where um, my grandmother's mother and her grandfather, I believe, are buried. And there's there's many questionable legalities, (laughs) mind you, with with this story. The first being that, you know, you can't just travel internationally with ashes and decide that you're going to bury them in a cemetery for which you don't have a plot. My dad was like, well, we're just going to dig a hole and uh, we're going to bury their ashes. And I'm like, oh, this seems kind of... He's like, well, don't worry, I brought the shovel. I'm gonna... There's no one's going to see. Okay, so it really wasn't all that scandalous ultimately. But then he was like, well, okay, I'll only bury half of the ashes. I got a plan for the other half. I'm like, I don't... What do you, what do you mean? What's the plan? You know, we've already illegally buried the remains of our grandparents. My dad likes uh, coming up with sort of outlandish plans and it can be an eccentric character. He's like, okay, so, you know, you're familiar with Stonehenge. There's a site outside of Dublin which is older than Stonehenge by about 200 to 300 years. It's a site called Newgrange. And so this is an is a ancient burial site of the Druid people dating back many thousands of years. And this one in particular is famous because on the winter solstice, the sun shines through a point in the top of a hill and projects onto a pathway and illuminates an altar at the end of a corridor, very much like an Indiana Jones movie. 
you get you go in there and you go on a guided tour. My dad decided that both my sister and I, before we went in, he's like, okay, take a handful in a plastic bag of your grandparents and put them in your pocket. And then uh, we're going to go in and do the tour. He said he's going to distract the guards and I have to climb over the barricade and put their ashes in a five or six thousand year old <laughs> urn inside of this historical monument. And I was like, ah, no, that doesn't sound like a good idea. I know, I don't want to do it. But ultimately, he convinced us and he made it seem like something really important. His argument was, this is something interesting to do for your grandparents. I don't know. So basically, we went on this tour on this narrow corridor that gets darker and darker. It's very small. It opens up into almost like a cathedral. And then, so he decided he was going to distract the guard, and I, I reached in the pocket and I grabbed a small handful, and I was able to climb over this barrier and sprinkle a tiny bit into the urn, and I was like, okay, so I did it. Mission accomplished. And then my dad, I don't know what, what he was thinking at the time. So on our way out, he took like his entire bag full of these ashes and just threw them across the barricade, scattering the ashes all over this urn. In the, your mind, you think of ashes having a specific color, but when you actually hold ashes in you know, someone's remains, there's pieces of bone, and they're really white. They don't blend in with rock formations or mud very well. It stands out. It's chalky. So he scatters this stuff, and I look, I'm like, oh my god, it's so obvious that we're right there. And all the while, the um, tour guide is saying, you know, and, and they found here at Newgrange the remains of two people in an ancient civilization and we were just thinking to ourselves well you know from next time they do it they're gonna find two more and I, and I don't believe in them I'm not a superstitious person but when we walked out of this hill it was the most monstrous bleak torrential downpour for about three minutes and, and then all of a sudden the sky opened up and it was a beautiful day with that kind of uh, glistening green Irish hillside both me and my sister were looking at you like, this is insane. Whatever is going on here is something just absolutely large and cosmic and, and bizarre. I think uh, that my grandparents probably would have laughed at the whole idea of us going to all this trouble and risk potential uh, imprisonment for defacing a federal monument <laughs> all, in their, all in their honor. Thanks so much, Chris Keating. That piece was from Stephanie Foo's awesome musical podcast, Stage Dive. Real musicians tell their stories accompanied by music from the very band telling the story. You can check it out at stagedivepodcast.com. Now, our next partner in crime story, this is a family tale. But one member of this family, she didn't know whether she wanted to be part of the partnership. When I was a little girl, my grandmother, she would always tease me and, and ask me if I was an Afghan girl or an American girl. And I always said I was an American girl. Ariana Delawari was named after a country she had never seen. Ariana 
is the ancient name for Afghanistan. But she grew up in California, 8,000 miles from Afghanistan. As a kid, she didn't know about the decades of wars that began the year she was born, the Soviet invasion, and then the Taliban. This is one of the deadliest attacks of the war. Soviets dug in at the edge of the... But her father, who grew up there, he was heartbroken, watching his country fall apart from so far away. My name is uh, Nurella Delawari, Ariana's father. As much as I enjoyed living in America, my concern and thought was with the people, with my parents in Afghanistan. Growing up, Ariana knew her father had a singular mission, bring peace back to Afghanistan. So as a child, you know, my father's commitment to Afghanistan was, I mean, beyond. It was beyond 100%. It was his whole passion. Ariana's father, Noor, is an international banker. And when she was growing up, he organized Afghans across the world to lobby and protest and plead for peace. I found it very uh, hard to remain silent. Thousands of Soviet forces came to the country, carpet bombing and killing uh, a lot of children. So it was very uh, hard for people like me to stay outside. My dad was constantly going to Washington, D.C., meeting with congressmen. You know, he would hold all of these peace protests. Nora's wife says the mistress in their marriage was Afghanistan. She usually stated that during those days of struggle because I was involved so much. I don't recall if any weekend I was free to spend time with, with our children, with the family. I have to say, I really didn't understand what he was working so hard toward because no one seemed to be paying attention. It seemed like, you know, this country that no one even knew where it was on a map. Like other Americans, Ariana didn't get what her dad was so worried about in Afghanistan. She was more interested in art, theater, and music. She started a band in L.A. I didn't really understand the magnitude of it until 9-11. So when 9-11 happened, it was like everything changed. I just knew innately that we were going to be called on to, to be part of whatever it was going to take to create peace in the region. Noor saw his opportunity to go back and help. So he and his wife sold the family house. They had a yard sale and gave away everything they owned, and they moved to Kabul. I was, uh, for over 10 years, I was preaching peace and uh, encouraging people to go back, particularly the educated ones. So when it came to the an opportunity to come back to Afghanistan, and I got involved in the rebuilding of the banking system, Noor worked with the Ministry of Finance, stabilizing the country's volatile economy. And with her parents in Kabul, Ariana went to visit the country she was named after for the first time. And the second that I saw the mountains from the plane, I fell in love with Afghanistan, like, more deeply than I could ever have imagined. It became my muse, it became my passion. She got there in 2002, just after the Taliban fell. And... The people were so full of hope. I mean, they were, they were flying kites. Uh, men were able to shave their beards and go back to work. You know, people were allowed to play music again. There was just so much hope, and I felt it. I really believed that that moment was the 
this moment of peace in Afghanistan forever. But the hope for peace was short-lived. Then the violence began to creep back in. One of my mother's friends was killed at the Kabul Serena Hotel. There was even a bomb that went off close to my parents' house, and it broke all the windows and took the doors off their hinges. There was a bombing close to my dad's work. I mean, like, these things just kept happening. Peace was slipping away. Her mother moved back to California. It was just too dangerous. But her dad stayed. He had work to do, and Ariana understood. I felt a responsibility right away. You know, if I was a doctor at that point, I would have gone to help, you know, women deliver babies. But I am an artist, and so I, I had to do what I could do. And I had been making music about my experiences in Afghanistan. She wanted to make music. And she saw a window of opportunity that was closing. The Taliban had banned music before. It could happen again. She tracked down old traditional Afghan musicians, men who'd actually had to bury their instruments during Taliban rule. She was determined to make an album with them. So she brought her American bandmates to Kabul, despite the bombings and the violence. And they recorded an album together with three traditional Afghan musicians. I wanted to do this to preserve their music. And together, they sing songs about the war, and the rise of the Taliban, and how difficult it is to build peace. If the Taliban were to take over, music could be banned again. music has started to get attention in Afghanistan. I'm becoming more so of a public figure in Afghanistan. But recognition comes with a price. There have been death threats against Afghan actresses. In Pakistan, this famous singer, this woman, was killed for being a singer. So there's definitely a strong stance against music. Sometimes it scares me a little. You know, sometimes I think about the danger of that. But she kept singing, she kept making music, and then she was invited to sing at Afghanistan's first rock festival. She sang her songs for crowds of young Afghans, mostly men. I wrote a song called The East about a young boy who becomes a member of the Taliban. Um, He's a refugee and his mother is a widow and he's offered money and boarding to become a member of the Taliban. And he looks back on his life as an adult and sees his own son and realizes he's been killing his own people. And at the end of the show, I had young men coming up to me on the verge of tears and saying, I was a refugee. I had an experience like that. Your song touched my heart. So I feel like if it can do that there, you know, my hope is to be able to take that into the provinces and reach the hearts of young Afghans who may be more on the fence. The provinces are where the real threat of Taliban control lives. They're dangerous for a musician and a woman. But it's also where her songs might do the most good. And like her father, Ariana feels a calling. I think my dad, sometimes he says things like, you can't go to the provinces and play shows. Like, are you crazy? It's Taliban run, you know. 
But I think he understands I have to do it. He has the same cause and he cares about the same people for the same reason. To be honest with you, I'm more worried about Ariana around here. Because she's a woman, art and particularly music, they do not appreciate. But I don't discourage her because I do believe that uh, her music and her songs and lyric about peace and unity in Afghanistan are valuable. My father and I are now kind of working together. Banking and, and music are very different. Her contribution is more enjoyable, more... Uh, I wish I would have been an artist like her. But the beautiful thing that's happening is together we're covering different bases. We have serious challenges and problems. I have a legacy to follow. I think Ariana also will have the same to follow a legacy of making contribution to wherever we live. I think that's wonderful. You can find out more about Ariana Delawari's story, along with her music and a documentary she's made, on our website, snapjudgment.org. You're listening to Snap Judgment, the partner in crime episode, and don't go anywhere. Because when we return, the Uber producer is going to take us for a ride in the Wayback Machine. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to Snap. Don't forget to fill up your iPod with even more NPR podcasts. From TED Radio Hour, to Ask Me Another, to any of the many shows offering you insight into music, news, culture, and entertainment. You can find it all on iTunes under Podcasts. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR, the partner in crime episode. My name is Glenn Washington, and public radio listeners, we're going back now to the place where a lot of you were pointed at and made fun of, because we know our demographic here. I know you are going back to high school, and as you might recall back in high school, that even worse than being called out, was not being noticed at all. Sage Turtle tells us her story. So I'm 12 years old, and I'm the ugliest, fattest kid at my school. And one day I'm standing outside of class and this girl comes walking up to me and I have no idea what to expect, but experience has taught me it's likely to be bad, whatever it is. 
And she stops and she says, You seem really lonely. I see you every day eating lunch by yourself in the library, reading a book. And I think you should eat lunch with me and my friends. And inside my head, there's this like chorus of singing angels. But to her, I just say, yeah, I'd really like to. I start eating lunch every day with Marta and her friends, and soon Marta and I are best friends. We spend every single moment together at school. We play endless games of backgammon, listen to Depeche Mode's Some Great Reward on the record player, and we laugh. (laughs) And I bloom into a new girl with her. And the years pass, and now we're 15, and Marta gets a crush on the most boring boy in the entire world, Scott. He has beige clothes and beige skin and a beige mind. Suddenly, she's playing backgammon with him during lunch. That's a two-person game. And now, when I call her after school, her phone is busy. So I commit the ultimate betrayal. I hold Scott's hand all throughout the school performance of My Fair Lady. And if we adjust for inflation, imagine I've just told you that Scott and I made love in the aisle all throughout the rain in Spain falls mainly on the plane. I mean, this is the enormity of my betrayal. Marta finds out. She corners me at school and she screams at me for 20 minutes and everything she says is right. And all I can do is stand there saying, please tell me what I can do to fix this. I will do anything. And she walks away and she stops and turns back and she says, nothing. There is nothing that you can do. For the next two weeks, I cry in the bathtub and the grocery store and math class. And my dad is like, Sage, you'll find another friend. And I'm thinking, it took me 12 years to find the first one. I'm going to be in university before I make another friend. And also, I wish Marta dead in this great variety of interesting ways. Like when she's savaged by wolves in our little suburban park and there's a thread of blood trailing out of her mouth. Two weeks later, Marta has a brain hemorrhage. She's in the hospital in a coma for a month. A grinding, awful month. And my dad says... You can't go visit her, but you can send her flowers. So I do. I send her flowers. And Marta spends the next year in the hospital learning how to write and talk and eat all over again. And then she does come back to school. And I'm standing outside class and I'm waiting for it to start. And she comes walking up to me. And her gait is unsteady, and she's wearing this big plastic helmet to protect her head. And I have no idea 
what to expect. And she stops in front of me and she says, I just wanted to say thank you. After all those terrible things that I said to you, you sent me flowers. And that really meant something to me. And I'm looking at her and thinking, I could live to be 102 years old and I will never be as kind as this girl. And then she invites me to her house. And all through that fall and that winter, we play backgammon and we listen to Depeche Mode on the record player and it's really frantic and it's really forced. And there's always this shadow sage and this shadow Marta and they are laughing together. And we're not. Thank you, Sage, for sharing your story with The Snap. It was produced with the assistance of Anna Sussman and Julia DeWitt. Now, so many of our stories, for some reason, they all come from the town of Detroit, Michigan. So many. This one is special. Snap Judgment's Mark Ristich recalls some time spent with a very, very dear partner in crime. One night, I come home from work, and I have a message on my answering machine. Marky, it's Grandpa Jordan. Come sleep. I drive over to my grandpa's around 10 o'clock at night, and that's when we start dinner. Zelnik, which is Macedonian for spinach pie, manja, which is lamb stew, and waffles. At 86, my grandfather is an insomniac, and at 26, I am a night owl. So I eat, he berates me for not making enough money, and then he says, don't listen to me, Marky, don't listen, I'm an old man. And then we go into the living room. We throw on some Macedonian music. And that night, he tells me the story about needles. Marky, World War II at the bar. It's lunchtime, 1944, Detroit, at the corner of Grand River and Fenkel, right where the trolley car turns around. And there is Jordan's on the river. There's no river, just the street, Grand River. But that's my grandpa Jordan's bar. It's a busy place, and on this day, he is short-staffed. He's back behind the bar, serving up drinks, dishing lunch, making soup at the same time. And right as he's chopping chicken, lunch is interrupted with a wartime announcement. I am telling you today about the liberation of Paris. It was indescribably dramatic. Fighting, yet the people frantic with the joy of liberation. My grandfather goes, oh my God, oh my God. But not for the French. No. He's just sliced open his hand. Blood is pouring all over the counter, and he starts to stagger. One fella drinking coffee at the end of the bar, he takes notice. He hops down off his stool, he slips behind the bar, he grabs a clean towel and applies pressure to the wound. The bleeding slows, but the cut is deep. And then he says, 
Mr. Jordan, you got to get to a doctor. My grandpa shakes his head. No, no doctor. You got to stitch it up. Believe me, I know. It won't close. How you know? I'm a medical student at Bowling Green and... Okay, you stitch him up. No, Mr. Jordan, see, I, I'm not a doctor yet, but I'll give you free lunch for a week. Oh, okay, Mr. Jordan. So the guy goes over to his stool, and out of his bag he pulls this little tin. It's got iodine, bandages, sutures, scissors, and a needle. So right there, behind the bar, he stitches up my grandfather, right in front of all the regulars. At the end of it, they're all slapping him on the back, calling him needles. My grandpa, one-handed, he serves him up a massive lunch with a nice slice of pie. Then, as the lunch rush dies down, he says to my grandpa, Mr. Jordan, do you have any work that needs to be done? Grandpa says, Needles, can you attend bar? I'll try, Mr. Jordan, I'll try, I'll give it a shot. Okay, one thing, no drinking. Not a problem, Mr. Jordan, I never had a taste for this stuff anyway. So he hands him an apron, and Needles begins tending bar. He drinks coffee to stay alert. On break, he reads. It's a good arrangement, until one day at happy hour. An argument between a couple of guys, it escalates into a shouting match, and then a fist fight. Tables get upturned, bottles break, glasses shatter. Grandpa has to step in, separate them, and kick them out. And then he looks around the room, no needles. So Grandpa checks behind the bar, and Needles is on the floor, quivering. Grandpa pulls him up. Needles, shake it off. Needles says, I'm okay, Mr. Jordan. <laughs> really, I'm fine. But then moments later, when Needles thinks no one is looking, my grandpa spies him pouring some whiskey into his coffee. Grandpa does nothing, and then he says, Needles, take out the trash. And when Needles leaves, he takes a salt shaker, opens it up, and empties it into Needles' coffee. And he says to the crowd, Needles comes back in, serves a couple drinks, and then he takes a strong pull on the coffee. His face sours, he spits it up in the sink, and it's all good fun for the regulars. But at closing time, Grandpa calls him over. Needles knows what's coming, and before he can even start, he begs him, Mr. Jordan, look, I know I shouldn't be drinking. I, I got a nervous condition, and I can't lose this job. I need money for medical school. Please, I'll do anything. Grandpa says, look, Needles, I like you. Come. So he strikes a deal with him. He has 30 gallons of white paint in the basement. Needles can go door to door painting houses until the paint runs out. And Needles, he's true to his word. He goes out painting and he comes back with a load of cash. And they split it up. Then he says, You know, Mr. Jordan, if we had a truck, I could do bigger jobs. So they go downtown and Grandpa buys an old pickup truck. The next day, Needles goes off to paint and that night, Needles doesn't come back. He's gone. Vamos. No more needles. Instead, a few days later, two military police show up at the bar. White hats, white belts, white armbands that say MP. They say they're looking for a guy. A guy who's passing himself off as a medical student. Have you seen this guy? Sure. Needles. He used to work here. But I fired him for drinking. Grandpa pours him some coffee, he gives him some pie, and in between bites, they tell him. Needles was an army medic. He could handle the death, but not the shelling. And so he deserted, and now 
The military police were looking for him. Do you have any idea where he is? Now my grandpa knows what everybody knows. For desertion, the ultimate penalty is death. Do you know where he might have gone? How he might get there? My grandpa pauses, and I say, Grandpa, did you tell him Needles took your truck? He says, No, Marky, no. And then he holds open his hand. Listen to me, Marks. How many lives? How many lives he saved, Marks? You don't shoot the doctor, Marky. You don't shoot him. You don't shoot him. It's about that time, partner. I know you said. But don't despair. Don't scream. Don't smack someone you love upside the back of the head. No. Because full Snap episodes are available right now for your listening pleasure. Snapjudgment.org. If you tweet me, then I'll tweet you back. Our Twitter handle is SnapJudgment.org. And Facebook doesn't even make any sense without Snapjudgment. Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, however you want it. That's how we make it. Snap was produced by myself and the most desperate band of desperados the world has ever known. Hide your daughters from the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. From whence come the beats, from bets come the beats. Pat Mercedes Miller, Stephanie Fu can hotwire a car in 40 seconds. Anna Sussman calls 911 on Litterbugs. Lorenzo Gorio is the perfect getaway driver. Julie DeWitt's hands are registered as a deadly weapon. Nick Vanderkoek has someone else's fingerprints. And Will Urbina doesn't need guns to take your money, no. Because he's got a computer. Now, have you ever felt sorry for beating up the neighbor kid, invited him over to apologize, and when he knocked on the door, you stole his lunch money? Well, that is no way to treat the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and I, for one, will not stand for it. Many thanks to the CPB. PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, putting the public in public media, whether the public likes it or not. PRX.org. And now, this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact... You and your best buddy could come up with a scheme to take Las Vegas' Bellagio Hotel out of millions of dollars by supplying them secretly coded decks of cards designed specially by you. And when you sit down at the blackjack table, you know exactly which cards the dealer is holding. And right when you are about to make your big score, the pit boss comes over, puts his hand on your shoulder, and says he wants to know something. Why is your face on every single Joker card? Oh. You could do all that and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR.